You don't know flag. You Don't Know Flat, a podcast full of stories about retro gaming, retro computing, video games, arcade games, and technology from a guy who was there and still is. My name is Rob O'Hara, but for the next 30 minutes, you can call me Flat. Greetings and salutations, listeners, and welcome to part two of my You Don't Know Flat special about movie special effects on the first Half of the episode, which was episode 226, we talked about different types of special effects that interested me as a kid. Things like latex masks and stop motion and matte paintings. And we talked about some of the masters of those arts and some of the people that had effects on me. So in part two, we're going to talk... Part two will be a little bit more personal. Part two will be my uh, uh, experiences, I suppose, with special effects, um, some of the uh, history or the evolution of special effects. You know what? It's just all about special effects. No need explaining it. Let's just get started talking about it. I have mentioned on previous episodes of You Don't Know Flack that we had a VCR all the way back in 1978. In fact, I think I mentioned it on <laughs> the first half of this episode. And as part of that VCR, we had a camera. It was black and white only. So for, I believe, the first two or three years that we had a VCR and a camera, we only had a black and white uh, VHS video camera, VCR camera. Uh, but that did not stop me from trying to make my own movies. Of course, I was influenced by the movies I had seen as a child, mostly Star Wars at that point, and I wanted to make my own movies. And so the the earliest recording that I have is of uh, me walking around my room with the uh, video. By the way, I, I, I want to explain this. The VCR was in our living room, and my bedroom was uh, off of the living room, but on the complete opposite side uh, of, of the house or, you know, of, of the living room. And the there was a box with basically like an XLR connection, I believe, that the camera hooked into. And it came with like a 50 foot or a hundred foot cable. So you would attach the cable to this box, which was somehow connected to the VCR. I don't know the, the technicality. I don't, I don't know how that was connected. I was a little kid. Um, but that cord, the other end of it connected to the video camera. So the video camera at that point was portable, but it had to be attached with that cable. So you had 50 foot, I think, to wander around. Uh, my, my mom actually shot some videos in our front yard uh, where she would stretch the camera all the way out to the front yard. So the VCR never moved. So <clears throat> I was allowed to take the camera into my room and make some uh, uh, recordings. Now, on. I guess um, one of the things with this setup was that the, the video was always going back to the living room TV. So my parents were probably in the living room snickering at whatever I was trying to record. Uh, 
So anyway, with this setup, with the VCR in the living room and the cable running all the way into my bedroom, I made my first uh, Star Wars movie. And actually, this was a uh, a very strange and sad movie about a boy who was the last surviving person on Earth. I don't know where I got that idea, probably from something I saw on television. And I was uh, literally six or seven years old. But I was uh, using the camera and filming things in my room. So it's kind of funny because you could see a lot of the toys I had at that time. But I did try this special effects shot where I put the camera on my shoulder uh, and held it with my right hand. And then with my left hand, I held my X-Wing fighter up in front of the camera so you could just see over the top of the X-Wing. So you couldn't see my hand underneath supporting it. And I walked around the room with the X-Wing fighter flying and moving slightly up and down and left and right with the camera, um, you know, moving behind it as I walked around the room. I don't know why there would have been an X-Wing fighter flying, you know, assuming scale flying around a giant's bedroom. I don't know. But um, that was like my first attempt at trying to create my own special effects on uh, a home movie. I don't know that I still have that recording, but some of these I do have. And I am going to tell you right now, they're too embarrassing for me to share publicly. I'm I'm not going to put them uh, on YouTube and share them, but where I am going to put them is on my Patreon. So if you're listening to this and you're one of my Patreon subscribers, you're going to get to watch these home movies, which are quite terrible. The next one is one that I do have a recording of, and it is called simply The Battle of Hoth. Now, Kenner made multiple Hoth play sets, and I had them all as a kid. And I had this uh, four by eight sheet of wood in my room that was originally used for slot car racing. So we had racetracks built on this, but we decided to use the bar stools from my parents' kitchen and lift the wood up. So now the wood is three foot off the ground and balanced on four bar stools. And what my friends and I did was cover the wood with a white sheet, which simulated <laughs> Hoth. And then we put my Hoth playsets on each side of, of this giant piece of wood. And my friends ducked down kind of underneath the wood. So what I did with the camera, so I was the director. And I would take the camera and point it to the setup on the right. And we would talk about, um, it was almost like playing army. Like they would say, Hey, what, what am I going to shoot? What did I attack? But while the camera was pointed to the right, then my friend on the left would move his things around. So he would move the spaceships or the action figures or whatever. And then uh, I would move the camera to the left. And then the person on the right was supposed to move his things. So that was the way I didn't have a way to do stop motion. I didn't have a way to animate any of these things, but that was my idea was that whoever the camera wasn't focused on would move <laughs> their miniatures. And somehow this would create a realistic effect. Now in reality, for those of you that end up watching this, uh, you'll see that my friends are in the shot all the time as are the posters <laughs> in my room, the other things in my room. Uh, so you know, I, I was, especially as a young child, the end effect never 
matched up to what was in my mind. I was never able to capture, you know, the the idea that I had. I wanted this idea where things were moving and you would you would think that they had moved um, because the camera wasn't focused on the person. But in reality, it didn't didn't quite turn out that way for me. Now, um, when when we got a little older, we got a color camera. And this would have been probably 1982, I think. Maybe 81, but definitely uh, by 82, we had a color uh, video camera. And not only did we have a color VHS camera, but we got a portable VCR. So the VCR was two parts. There was a part that was always stationary, and then that connected to a base. And then the VCR itself could be removed and carried around in this pack. I want to say it weighed about 20 pounds and then the camera connected to it. My mom used to drag it all over the place. We went to the zoo. We went to 4th of July celebrations. We went everywhere. My mom would, would make these videos uh, on the go. So I had a little bit more freedom with this and I was able to start making some color home movies. And one of these home movies, which I am really embarrassed about, is uh, my take on Return of the Jedi. Now, for starters, I didn't have the ability to do green screens or blue screens or anything like that. So the background for my movie was a big white piece of poster board that I had taped to a cardboard box. And on this poster board, I drew some grass and some trees, and that was supposed to represent the um, indoor, which is uh, uh, where the speeder bike chase takes place. And so that is the setting for my Return of the Jedi movie. A lot of what happens is me holding up action figures. And so because of the distance that uh, the background is from the camera on the screen, the action figures are just miniature, tiny little things that appear at the bottom of the screen. But that wasn't the great takeaway of this. The great takeaway was my special effects with the speeder bikes. So first of all, um, I did not own the speeder bike toy. Uh, They made a speeder bike toy, and uh, I didn't have it. I always wanted it, but I didn't have it. I got it much later in life. So instead, I built a model of a speeder bike out of Legos. Um, You know, it looks reasonably like a speeder bike. It's not too bad. And then I attached strings to the front, the back and the sides and attached it to one of those, like a, a, the X that a marionette would be attached to. I attached it to one of those that I made out of cardboard. I used fishing string. And so this was my uh, speeder bike special effect. I could not build it in a way that the figures could actually sit on it. So they stand on it. Um, so it looks, um, not exactly like a speeder bike, but it's not bad. Um, so then what I did was I got these cardboard tubes that were like trees. Th- those were supposed to be the tree trunks. So I put those in the foreground and then I was able to out of camera, fly this speeder bike in and out between the trees, behind the trees, in front of the trees. It really gave me this 3d thing. Now, Uh, When you watch this video, you'll go, what is that supposed to be? Are those trees? They look like cardboard tubes. Why is the background not colored? (laughs) Why can you see you standing behind there holding this thing? And that's because, again, the results that I had in my mind is not what was captured (laughs) 
uh, by the camera. What was captured by the camera was a very um, lofty 10-year-old trying to make uh, his own version of Return of the Jedi. Now, there's an exciting uh, special effect that happens at the end of this uh, Return of the Jedi movie, which is the biker scout crashes and his uh, biker, his, his speeder bike explodes. Now, I didn't have any way to do anything like that. So I built a miniature speeder bike because I knew on these specials they were always building miniatures. So I built a miniature out of Legos, and then I tied pieces of thread to random parts of the speeder bike, and then I just made sure the Legos were kind of loose, and then one at a time I pulled the threads and the parts were supposed to be blowing off. And uh, this is accompanied with sound effects made by my mouth near the camera of me going, <laughs> which is um, pretty awful. It's as bad as it sounds. It uh, um, is not, not special at all. So that was my attempt at uh, making Star Wars movies. I did have another Star Wars movie. And I did some random special effects, uh, and one of the things I was trying to do was to get a spaceship to land uh, in AC. Now, we had a uh, – when I was a kid, they used to have model rockets. I, I don't know if – I mean, I assume they still do, but I, I don't hear kids talk about this anymore. But they had model rockets, and we had one that was a TIE fighter. And we had shot the rocket, and it had come back down. So now I had a, a plastic TIE fighter that was designed to be very lightweight – uh, with a hole through the middle of it. And so I tried attaching a string very high up in the room to very low and putting the TIE fighter on there and having it slide down the string, but it would just get hung up. It didn't work. So then I tried a second approach where I put it on the string and then I just sat there and I wiggled the screen over and over or the string, you know, to try to get it to hop down and it looked terrible. And so in the third version of this special effect, I just threw the TIE fighter. <laughs> I put some pillows uh, where it was going to land and I just stood across the room and I just chunked the TIE fighter at the pillows. And uh, that was, that was my crash landing scene. So uh, yeah, I had a lot of attempts at special effects that just didn't turn out very well. I just didn't have the means to do uh, the things that I was coming up with in my mind. Now um, <clears throat> there was another, we, we talked about on that tape, uh, back to the SPFX tape, the special effects tape that I had. One of the things that I had recorded was the, um, the history of stunts, which was the, the making of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And it was called great, great historical stunts or something like that. Uh, and so my attempts at special effects had not paid off. So I decided I was going to become a stunt man. So, I made a, uh, I guess I would call it my attempt at a television program called Stunts. And our VCR, uh, I don't, I, th I think it was built into the camera, had the ability to uh, very slowly, one letter at a time, to program in words that would appear on the screen. And so I made it say Stunts. And uh, I was the host of this show. And apparently, <laughs> I was supposed to be a famous stuntman. And I was introducing uh, viewers to the world of stunts. And so uh, I talk about some different stunts. And by the way, unfortunately, I also do have a recording of this. And I will be posting this on Patreon as well. Um, there's um, 
Uh, one of the first stunts that I did was I uh, put a beanbag on the floor of our living room. I climbed up on our recliner and I jumped off and landed on this beanbag. And then I walked up to the camera and I said, this was a reenactment of a stunt that had gone wrong and that uh, a stuntman had broken his neck or something really, <laughs> really um, uh, overly dramatic. Uh, so that was that. And then on the next segment, I talked about how stuntmen were actually brought in to do the breakdancing in the movie Breakin', which uh, is not true. But in my, my movie, it was. And so then there's about two minutes of me breakdancing from the knees down. So I think, I don't know why, I think I didn't want, our, our um, kitchen had tile floor, and I don't think I wanted people to know it was in the kitchen. So... Uh, it's, it's zoomed in basically on my, on my feet doing break dancing. So it, there's some sweet moves, you know, from the shin area down. Um, so that's, that's the second portion of the stunts program. But the, the third part was a, a reenactment of a fighting scene between uh, me, the famous stuntman and Slimer, the ghost from Ghostbusters. But as I, as you probably know, I did not have any way to make Slimer appear. So I said that this was the footage before they put the ghost in. So it's me fighting an invisible ghost. So there's a lot of just me trying to punch in the air and getting hit in the stomach. And I believe I have Ghostbusters playing uh, on my boombox while I'm doing all this. So it's really quite ridiculous. It's the kind of things that 10 year olds did, uh, you know, 10, 11, 12, whatever did, um, but didn't record it, but I had the means to record it. And unfortunately I had the wherewithal or perhaps the, uh, poor judgment to save these things. And so, uh, yeah, th those were some of my attempts at, um, special effects. There was one other, uh, movie. Now that I'm thinking about it, where I had some friends over and uh, I don't have this footage anymore, but we um, tried to make our own ninja movie. And so we didn't have a lot of special effects in it, but the one special effect that we did have was I had somehow inherited one of those exercise trampolines. Now, if you weren't around in the eighties, everybody seemed to have one of these. They were always at garage sales and they were, personal size trampolines that people could bounce on and, and exercise. And so we dragged this out to my backyard and my yard had a chain link fence and we put it up against the chain link fence and then we piled leaves around the edge of it. So the idea was, is that during this ninja chase in which the good ninja would chase the bad ninja, uh, we would run and then jump and bounce off the trampoline and jump over the fence. But it never really worked how we wanted it to work. And, uh, the effect was not that good. I don't know what happened to that tape. I really wish I had it because I don't have any good footage of me, uh, in my, my ninja suit, my ninja regalia from that time. So that would be nice to have, but, uh, that is all gone. Now I didn't make movies for a long time until I got to college and actually my junior year. So my freshman and sophomore year, I was uh, uh, not doing any of that. But my junior year, I moved in with Susan, and we got married uh, a year or two after that. 
and she had a cordless uh, video camera that she had got. I mean, it was big. It was really large. Um, but she had brought that from her house. And so we had gone around. We filmed some footage of the place we were living. Uh, we interviewed each other. We did goofy stuff. But I made a movie one time, and it's called The Disaster. The disaster, and I do have this, and this is another one that I'll put on the Patreon, and I'll probably regret sharing this because it's really silly, but uh, the idea of the disaster was it was supposed to be like a Three Stooges-type film. So it's all about me trying to hang a shower curtain. Uh, I use a staple gun, and I accidentally staple my hand to the shower curtain. Uh, I do some different things. Then I slip on a toilet roll and the toilet roll or the roll of toilet paper flies around the room. And at the very end, uh, I fall down and I go to reach up to help myself up by pulling myself up on this bookcase. Now this was one of those really cheap and flimsy metal bookcases that was completely filled with books, both paperback and hardback books. This thing was filled. I have always owned a lot of books. And the stunt slash special effect was I intended to pull this over on top of me. Well, that's exactly what happened, except for in the scene you will see that I think it hit a guitar amp or something, so it didn't fall over all the way. It fell to about a 45-degree angle, maybe a little further, and then all the books just fell off that directly onto my head. Um, and then the final shot was I used some crunched-up ice, and I put the ice in my mouth, and then I did a shot where I let the ice fall out of my mouth, and it was supposed to be my teeth, but it really just looks like I'm spitting ice out. But uh, that was pretty much it. <laughs> As far as home movies I made, trying to do my own special effects. Now, I do have to say, I just want to talk about this for a minute. If I if we'd had the tools available today uh, when I was a kid, I don't know what kind of movies I would have made. Uh, we took, my wife took her Girl Scout troop when they were younger to a local, one of our local libraries. And we went there and they have what's called, well, they have a makerspace at the library. They have 3D printers that the kids can use. You don't even have to pay for filament. You can just go to the library and print things out for free. They have a Cricut, uh, which I believe you have to bring your own, I don't know what it's called, material, whatever the vinyl, whatever you use to, to put into a Cricut to print on. You have to bring that. But you could use the Cricut for free. But there's also three computers that have the complete Adobe suite installed. So they have Photoshop, they have um, uh, Final Cut, all the, all the editing stuff. And then on the back side of this room, it's all a green screen. And there are cameras and iPads, and they have all the software where you could shoot your own movies in there uh, and use the green screen. Man, what a dream! Can you imagine if I had access to that when I was 10? Like, I thought I would never be able to... Uh, you know, have access to a green screen. I thought you only got that in Hollywood. I thought those were, it was a million dollar thing. And now uh, at work, whenever we do Zoom meetings, there's a button that says, do you want to just automatically erase your background? You don't even have to have a green screen. You just press a button and it will, 
remove everything that's behind you in the shot. It's amazing. It's amazing technology. Plus, software like OBS that I use to stream with and other people use has the ability to do chroma key, which is basically green screen. You can put a green screen behind you, erase that, and then replace it with a picture or a video. It's unbelievable. And as a kid, this was technology that I thought, A, I would never have access to, and B, would cost you millions of dollars. And now it's the opposite. Everybody has access to it, and it's free. You can literally get apps on your phone that will do this for free. It's just unbelievable to me. So, uh, I mean, I've thought about, you know, doing things like like stop motion. Like now I could do stop motion. You could use a webcam and you could use things and take a picture one at a time and you could put all that together and I, and I could do it. But, you know, now I got kids. <laughs> now I got a job. Now I got stuff to do. So it's just it's just not possible. Um. So we talked about the iPhone. We talked about uh, digital editing and or you know that stuff. Also, I will just say this: um, you know, I've been working on my side project, which are YouTube videos about my van. I'm building a camper van. This is the the project is called Big Rob's Van. It's on YouTube. It's YouTube forward slash at Big Rob Van or Big Rob's Van. But uh, with that. I shoot all this video footage. I have cameras all around me. I have a GoPro camera. I use my phone. I put all that into the computer. I do digital editing. I do sound. I had music. I've added sound effects. I've cut sound out. I've changed things. I've done color grading. Uh, I haven't done any green screen stuff with that, but I might. I've thought about some things I could do. But, you know, there's a part of me sometimes – uh, projects aren't just projects. They're also symbiotic in nature. And what I mean by that is, for example, my podcast, Sprite Castle. I enjoy my podcast, Sprite Castle, because I like talking about Commodore games. But it also forces me to play Commodore games. So if I weren't doing the podcast, I don't know how many of those games I would go back and revisit. I might not revisit them at all. So it's this thing where I have to play the games to do the podcast, and to do the podcast, I have to play the games. So they bounce off of each other. And I have really found that with Big Rob's van. I enjoy working on the van and converting the van, but I also really like making the videos and shooting the videos and editing the videos and coming up with creative stories to tell through the videos. But I can't do the videos unless I work on the van. And sometimes the videos are more fun to work on than the van, but you have to work on the van if you're going to make the videos. So it's this uh, hand in hand kind of thing that that, um, I'm so glad that we have access to the things that we have today. I edit with uh, video uh, Vegas, um, but there are free tools that are out there now for, for doing video editing. So uh, it, it, uh, and everything that I've learned with Vegas and I have been using Vegas for a long, long time, Everything that I've learned with it, I learned off of uh, online documentation and YouTube. Like, I've never had a class. I've never uh, had anybody show me anything. I mean, I have, but they were virtual people online. So the information's out there. The technology and the tools are out there, and it's it's um, 
it's literally a technology that as a kid I would have killed for and thought I would never have access to. And now we all have free access to it. It's pretty cool. Um, so from the first part of the episode, uh, the first half, I should say, of this topic, the special effects, you probably got the impression, which is true, that I am a fan of practical effects. I like masks. I like um, squids, or and not squids. I do like squids <laughs> and calamari. Uh, squibs with a B, which are the little packs people used to put under their shirt that would explode uh, to simulate being shot in a movie. Um, I like all those things. I like matte paintings. I like I like the physical thing because no matter what you do, I don't think a computer can quite give you the same feeling that a physical set can, which we talked about in the first episode with, um, you know, like uh, in, in um, Lord of the Rings using those giant uh, miniature, but large scale miniature sets. They just have a feeling that you don't get with CGI. But that being said, uh, I would be remiss if I were talking about movie special effects and didn't talk a little bit about CGI. Uh, the first CGI that I remember seeing was Tron. Uh, Tron was a huge movie, a huge part of my childhood. I did an entire episode of You Don't Know Flack about Tron. Uh, if you want to hear more about Tron, you could go back and, and visit that episode. But Tron was, uh, you know, like everything I wanted. Like I went to arcades. I played arcade games. I played computer games and video games and you would imagine, hey, is there somebody in there? Is there something in there? And so for the people in Tron, you know, Flynn and Tron and everybody, uh, to get sucked inside this video game and uh, and be forced to play these games and seeing the light cycles, not as pixels on an arcade game like that you and I would see if we're playing the arcade game, but to see those CGI rendered uh, light cycles was super awesome. I had every Tron toy that you could get. Uh, I was infatuated with Tron and, um, but that was, that was so early that obviously it was computer. Like when you saw the, the light cycles in Tron, um, you knew that there was CGI. You knew that that was computer graphics, that it didn't look like, uh, and it was supposed to be, and that's how they got away with it because it was inside, uh, the movie. I mean, it was inside the video game in the movie, right? So, um, I would say I do want to mention the last Starfighter because the last Starfighter is a couple years later. I think it's eighty four, and the last Starfighter is for the most part a you know it's a kids science fiction movie and it's about a kid that gets drafted to go to outer space, you know, and and and. Uh, uh, fight and become the last starfighter to defend Earth and, and uh, all that good stuff. But uh, the special effects in outer space, instead of using traditional models and miniatures and stop motion and all those things, they used CGI. I remember reading a magazine article about them using a Cray computer, which we thought, hey, I'll never have access to that. Uh, now I think my phone has more <laughs> processing cycles than a Cray. But um you know, instead of doing that, they used CGI. Now it doesn't look 
like traditional movies look like at that time. The mod, I mean, it doesn't look like the ships from Star Wars or Star Trek or 2001. They look like CGI ships flying around. They look a little cartoony. They look a lot cartoony. But it did kind of plant that seed that someday we might be able to pull this off. We might be able to have CGI that looks as good as models. Uh, I mean, this is a fantasy it's a science fiction movie so that we might be able to do that. Uh, and it didn't happen for a long time, but now obviously we're there. Uh, but the next checkbox that I wanted to talk about in this particular lineage is Terminator 2, which came out uh, in the summer of 1991. Uh, Terminator 1, great movie. It's a horror movie. Uh, I think it's horror more than sci-fi to be honest, but, uh, um, but the special effects are okay in that movie, but they're all practical, you know, but then we get to Terminator two again, 1991. And we have not just, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger as the Terminator who has returned, but now we have the T 1000, which is a new type of Terminator that is made out of liquid metal that can shift its performance or the, its, uh, shape. It can morph. And so morph is this new thing. Uh, I think the first time I saw morphing, gosh, I should have looked this up between the two. Uh, obviously, the the very first, I believe, uh, historically, the first morphing uh, special effect that appears on screen, I believe, is the one that's in Willow. Um, but that's not where I saw it. I saw it, like most people, in Michael Jackson's video, Black or White. At the end of the video, and there are people... And they are morphing from one to another. And I recorded that video. Uh, I recorded it with our VCR. And I remember my dad just having his mind blown. And and the two of us just going like, I don't know how they did that. I don't know. I don't know how they did that. You know, I think that person's an alien. Uh, not Michael Jackson. <laughs> the person that's morphing at the end. Um, I believe Michael Jackson is an alien in um, one of the Men in Black movies. But anyway, uh Terminator 2 comes out around this time that morphing is, is a thing. Morphing and, and mapping, right? Uh, so so you have um, uh, not just a morphing person or a morphing shape, but something that reflects its environment. So we've got the liquid metal, and it looks like liquid metal. Uh, it's shiny. Things are reflecting off of it. But then when it turns into a person, it doesn't look that way. Uh, but there's a scene... Towards the beginning of uh, Terminator 2, it's when the T-1000 shows up uh, at the uh, the prison, and it's after Sarah Connor, and it walks through a set of prison bars, and you see the you see in the the character or the actor is Robert Patrick, and he walks through these bars, and he just. Uh, and a part of it's sold with the sound too. You get that, you know, <laughs> kind of sound as he's going through the bars and then he's carrying a gun and the gun gets hung up in the bars. He has to turn the gun, uh, you know, up and down to get in between the bars. And there's the psychiatrist who's been there uh, interviewing Linda Hamilton, Sarah Connor. And he has a cigarette in his mouth and his mouth is just, his mouth is a gape. And the cigarette falls out and I didn't smoke, but I thought that's what we were, that's what we were all doing. When all of us 
collectively around the world saw that scene, like, I think we all knew, like, something just changed. Like, this is a new era of special effects. Like, they could do something that they couldn't do last week. This is this is something new. Um, so, you know, some of the effects in Terminator 2 are better than others. I won't go through all the special effects. But that first one, like, that's the moment where you go, something's different. This This is new technology. Uh, and so we saw CGI develop very quickly after that. That was 91. But in 1993, my father and I went to a new movie, the summer of 93, a movie about dinosaurs called Jurassic Park. Now, there is a very famous story. The guys from ILM uh, were working on Jurassic Park. Uh, and as the story goes, by the way, there, there is uh, I think I mentioned in the first part, but there is a, uh, ILM docuseries on Netflix. I think it's six parts. It's if you're into movies at all and special effects at all, it's really, really worth watching. But during that uh, time, uh, there are a couple guys you may have heard of Phil Tippett and Dennis Murin, uh, who were Phil Tippett had worked his way up more or less into management of special effects. And Dennis Murin was the premier stop motion animator uh, in the business. And those guys had worked together all the way back, dating back to star Wars. And so they wanted to make the dinosaurs in Jurassic park stop motion. And uh, I won't tell the entire story, but, if you watch this documentary, there's a, an entire episode about this. Uh, there were some up and coming animators who essentially said we can make believable dinosaurs with computers and nobody believed them and nobody wanted to do that. And ILM was not in the business of doing CGI like that. They didn't want to do it. And so essentially what these young guys did was, um, these people that were working on the film and Spielberg and other people came through, they walked through the special effects department and these young guys had their demo running on the computer and Spielberg and other people saw the demo and they were like, Whoa, what is that? And they said, Oh, it's a CGI dinosaur. And they said, basically make us a sizzle reel, you know, make us a, a 10 minute demo or two minute demo or something of, of what the CGI dinosaur could do. And so they did, they animated the dinosaur and it was walking around and, and doing that. And uh, they went into the, uh, I guess the ILM has their own movie theater and they went in the movie theater and they had all the people from ILM watching it and they had the investors uh, and they had Spielberg and everyone sat down to watch this two minute clip of CGI dinosaurs and they showed it and everybody knew it was just like the moment in Terminator 2 when they saw it on the screen, everybody knew it was like stop motion just died. Um, now stop motion didn't die because it was cheaper to do stop motion. And so there were still horror movies and low budget movies and things that continued on to do, um, stop motion for a while. But in that room, everybody knew that something had just changed. And so the, uh, infamous or famous part of this story is that, um, uh, Dennis Murin basically said, I've just become extinct. And um, Steven Spielberg recycled that line and put that into Jurassic Park. Uh, there was a little bit more to the exchange, um, but uh, 
Yeah. So, you know, it was a little play on the dinosaur thing, but, but they knew the minute that they saw that they knew they were out of a job and not that they were out of a job, but that an industry had just ended. And so Jurassic Park, when my dad and I went to go see Jurassic Park, and I mean, I was a a junior, you know, in, in college, but we'd gone to go see Jurassic Park. And I remember walking out of the theater afterwards and, and talking with my dad. And we were talking about the scene where the T-Rex is attacking the upside down Jeep and the children are in the Jeep. And I told my dad, I said, dad, I said, I know the kids are real in that scene. I know the kids are real. I also know that that T-Rex is not real. I know that. I mean, I, I, it looks real, but I know in my heart, I know that T-Rex is not real and the Jeep. I'm not sure about (laughs) The Jeep could be either one. Maybe it's real. Maybe it's not. I don't know. Uh, But I said that there is no way in that movie to determine what's real and what's not like, where do the special effects end? Where does the reality begin? And that movie right there, I thought, um, my dad used to say this, with the Michael Jackson, with the black and white video and, and Terminator too. But, um, definitely by the time we saw Jurassic Park, but my dad said, you can never trust anything that you see on TV again. At that moment, he said, you know, up until then, he said, you know, if you, if I saw it on the news, if I saw it, I would believe it. And he said, but now I can't believe anything that I see anymore. And I said, well, dad, well, we'll never have that kind of technology on home computers. <laughs> and of course, now we have video games that have uh, the more resolution, more quality than, than some of those old uh, CGI effects. So, um, but yeah, I think, um, uh, and you could go, you know what, I, I will, um, I'll mention a couple other things, but Jurassic Park for me is like lying in the sand where you go at that point, it's over. It's over for practical effects, except for in certain cases, um, you know, and especially money related or or time related. Sometimes it's it's cheaper to to um, you know make a mask than it is to do some CGI thing. Um, two years after Jurassic Park, we get Toy Story. Now I had forgotten. I knew Toy Story. I knew there were a lot of CGI movies, but I I looked up on Google. And Toy Story is listed as the first full-length CGI film. I had forgotten that it was the first. Um, Of course, you know, Pixar has always done a good job of making movies that worked for kids as well as adults. Um, I do remember uh, I didn't have kids when Toy Story came out, but I had nieces and nephews, and I saw Toy Story plenty. And um, it was that same kind of feeling I remember at the time, but, uh, you know, whenever there's a new technology like this, there's always that, that moment where you go, well, it takes really expensive computers and it takes really uh, specialized personnel to be able to do it. But then even if it doesn't feel this way in the back of your head, you can always say, yeah, in three years, it won't, or in five years, it won't. In five years, kids will be able to do this. And when Toy Story came out, I remember thinking, you know, traditional cartoon animation isn't dead yet, but give it a couple of years, you know, in a few years, they'll, instead of cranking out hand-drawn animation, they'll be doing CGI things and sure enough, they are. Um, so 
Back, so back, going back to ILM for a minute, uh, ILM had this kind of uh, heritage where they had um, worked on they had done they did the special effects I believe in the Abyss, the James Cameron movie, the uh, whatever it's called, the Water Tentacle or whatever they did that, uh, and, and things just kept progressing. They did the Terminator Two special effects, right? Then they did the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park, right? Uh, and so shift back to George Lucas. Now George Lucas. And this is again coming from that documentary, um, said that he had a dream that he wanted to edit digitally. He started with the old school of taking 35 millimeter film and cutting it up and taping it together. He didn't want to do that. He wanted to edit digitally. And so he uh, was pushing the boundaries of technology through ILM to try to get closer and closer to digital filmmaking. And so his first big push to do this, because the thing was he couldn't afford to do it by himself. He had to get financial backing. And the only way to do financial backing is to do a little bit of it. And if it works, get people to come on board that will support you. So the little bit of it that he did was with the Star Wars special editions, which were released in, I believe, 1997. Uh, I don't remember if it was 96, 97 or 97, 98. I think it was 97, 98. Um, but so they put star Wars empire strikes back and return of the Jedi. I think they're all a month apart. They put them back in theaters and I went to go see them. And when I was watching star Wars, I was like, huh, I don't remember that. I don't remember when the droids landed on Tatooine. And stormtroopers are looking for them. I remember them sitting on a dewback that was, uh, you know, a dewback is a big lizard thing. Uh, I remember them sitting on a dewback. I don't remember seeing one walking around in the background. That seems new. And there's a stormtrooper riding on that that looks really clunky. It doesn't quite look right. It doesn't quite look like a human being. And then they went to Moss Eisley Spaceport, which I've seen Star Wars at that point. I'd probably seen hundreds of times. And... They pull into Moss Eisley, and all of a sudden, there's a big animated dinosaur, and there's another animated thing, and there's a, this, and, and there's a dewback, and I go, what is going on? They've turned this into a cartoon, <laughs> uh, and so on and so forth. Um, and when you've seen something so many times, when they change the way that the explosion of the Death Star looks or different things, you go, huh, that didn't look right. Um, and then Empire Strikes Back was I – mean, Empire Strikes Back, I think, suffered – the least worst from the digital upgrades, but you got to return of the Jedi and there were two things. There's a lot about return of the Jedi that I always loved, but I always loved size noodles. Who was the musician? She was the singer uh, of the droopy McCool band. That was job of the huts band. Uh, I always loved that song that she sang. In fact, it was a real like disco song, like they wrote a real song and then translated it to another, the Huttonese language. So that's why it sounds like a real song and it's gone. It's been replaced with this cartoon act of this big cartoon thing. And I thought, what have they done? But I'll tell you what they've done is they're trying to push the idea that you can have a CGI character and you can mix it with live action. That was the agenda for all of that. And what does that lead to a few years later? Jar Jar Binks. That's what we get for that. So 
Um, I think George Lucas lost his way in the early days in the early Star Wars films. The special effects were there to tell the story. So he said, Hey, there's Luke Skywalker and he's going to meet this, uh, 800 year old little green goblin guy with big ears. And then they said, well, how are we going to do that? And they had to come up with special effects to, to match what he was telling with his story. We had to figure out ways to make ships fly. We had to figure out ways to make the force look real and droids move and all those things, you know, but it got, it got reversed at some point and it got to a point where these movies started just becoming, you know, just demo reels of their special effects. I don't feel like Jar Jar Binks makes the Phantom Menace a better movie. I think it makes it a more annoying movie. And of course, uh, I'm not breaking new ground if I complain about Jar Jar Binks. Uh, so, but, but that's what he kept pushing. It was, you know, first I want to make some digital special effects. Now I want to make a digital character. Now I want to make a digital, um, primary character that, that interacts with everybody, you know, when they re-released, uh, or when, um, uh, I might get this wrong, but I believe it's attack of the clones where, uh, Yoda in the theater in the original theater release was a puppet. And then when it came out at home on DVD, it had been turned into CGI. So there's just a, um, a lot of, uh, things that they were doing with CGI that didn't necessarily make things better. And now when you watch those things, Early CGI has not aged well at all. If you go watch a lot of those special effects, if you go watch the Return of the Jedi and you watch the musical number in Jabba's Palace, that looks terrible. <laughs> it looks really bad. Uh, so a lot of that early CGI stuff just didn't didn't age well. Whereas the spaceships in two thousand one, which was made a year before human beings landed on the moon. It was made in 1968. I believe those spaceships, the space station that's rotating out there in space is not just realistic. It's beautiful. It's just absolutely gorgeous to watch it. It's fascinating to watch that. And I don't think anybody ever watched George R. Binks and said, that's beautiful. <laughs> If you do, you got a different, you have a different perception of beauty, uh, than I do, but you know, it's, uh, CGI has, has taken off from there. And now, uh, you know, we have like these sci-fi movies like, uh, uh, Sharknado and things like that, where you can just come up with the most ridiculous, uh, things that you can come up with. And, uh, uh, nobody, nobody thinks twice about it. Let's move on from that. I want, I made a list here of, uh, some, uh, classic movies. You know what? I don't know that we need to talk about this. I'd made some list of Nosferatu and, um, uh, the wizard of Oz and things like that. Um, you know, we've already covered the, those types of special effects. We don't need to talk about that. Um, I do want to talk about Disney for a minute. I think when most people hear Disney, the average person, when you say, Oh, a Disney film, they think of the little mermaid. They think of beauty and the beast, these animated movies, Pinocchio, whatever, uh, that, you know, were hand-drawn cell animation. And Disney of course is, uh, pioneered that and, and was well known for that. But 
Disney had some of the greatest special effects as a kid. Um, and I won't list them all, but I want to talk about just a few movies that made impressions on me as a kid. One is Herbie. All the Herbie movies and Herbie the Love Bug, I remember thinking, how did they make this car fly? How did they turn Herbie, a Volkswagen Beetle, into an actor that would flash its lights and swing its doors on cue and do wheelies and drive on two wheels? And, uh, you know, and, and of course, in the days of, of practical effects, that was achieved by a hundred different methods. There were, you had everything from miniatures uh, that were that were stop motion to models that were jumped to cars where drivers hid uh, by pretending they were inside. I mean, they got inside the seat and there was a little cutout and they drove <laughs> that way. So they were they did a lot of tricks to pull those things off. So it's almost I mean, I, there's a, a level of ingenuity that you just have to appreciate for a lot of those movies. Um, another movie that I watched a lot as a kid we had on tape was the no mobile. The no mobile, uh, has a lot of blue screen. It has a lot of, um, forced perspective because you've got all these human actors that are gnomes that appear smaller than the children do. Um, it, it, it's a great, great movie. What's it? Jasper, <laughs> Jasper was the gnome. They're always yelling for Jasper. Um, but there was a, a no mobile. And then after that, uh, Darby O'Gill and the little people, same thing. Uh, it was, it was just, uh, um, like when you watched it as a kid, it wasn't like you saw it and you go, Oh, I see how they did that. Or I, I had no idea. I had no idea how they did that. Uh, it was just amazing. The last couple I'll mention is, um, number one, which was, I think, the epitome at, at the time was Mary Poppins. And Mary Poppins, I mean, you've got Mary Poppins who flies in on a flying umbrella. She goes to the kid's room. She pulls a lamp out of a purse. The kids are looking underneath the table. How do you do that? Then there's a whole stop motion thing. There's a whole scene where she sings to an animatronic bird that gets on her hand. And I mean, I was 30 when, and I was like, how did they do that? Did, did, did they build an animatronic bird back in the 60s? Did they know how to do that? I mean, it, uh, you know, they jump into a chalk drawing. They they go on a merry-go-round that's animated. They dance with cartoon penguins. It just goes on and on. They have a tea party on the ceiling. It's a crazy movie. Uh, and again, not CGI. It, and it's a wonderful movie. And it tells the story. It's It's the effects needed to tell the story. Uh, and then pushing that one uh, step further is bed knobs and broomsticks. Again, very similar. You have uh, the kids at one point, they uh, go to the Isle of Nabumbu <laughs> on the magic bed. Uh, and they go to uh, like a, um, a soccer game, I think, where they're, inter they're playing soccer with cartoon characters. Uh, there's um, uh, There's an army of suits of armor that attack at one point where there's nobody in there. And there's crazy special effects in those movies. And, uh, I, I just think they're really underestimated, um, and, and really deserve more respect for the, the level of special effects in those movies. Uh, I made a list here of top 10 movies 
that have special effects in them. I'm going to go through this quickly because uh, some of this is beating a dead horse, I think. But um, number one on this list I put was Flash Gordon. Flash Gordon is a movie that they tried to get made for decades and decades, and they couldn't get it made until Star Wars came out. And then all of a sudden, they were real hip on making a Flash Gordon movie. Um, But there's crazy special effects in Flash Gordon, uh, it's like all the special effects that are in Star Wars, but cheaper versions. <laughs> but you've got models, you've got miniatures, you've got um, uh, blue screen, you've got all the things that appear in Star Wars. Um, but they're used to tell, you know, again, the uh, the Flash Gordon story. Uh, Jaws, I really don't know, need to go into Jaws. Uh, I mean, it's just a, uh, a single, it's, it's, uh, editing genius, directing genius and one special effect, one animatronic shark that scares the hell out of people. I mean, it literally made people not want to go to the beach because they built a robot shark that barely worked. Um, but Jaws is a, a, a masterpiece and there's not a lot of special effects. There's a lot of stunts. In Jaws, there's not a lot of special effects, but there's one, and it's worth the price of admission. Uh, I put Labyrinth on this list. Labyrinth was a big movie in my uh, early teenage years. I had it on tape. Um, it's, uh, you know, you've got the girl, Sarah, she wishes that the, the Goblin King would take her brother, Toby away. I know all this by heart. Um, and, uh, and he does, of course, the Goblin King is David Bowie. It's Jim Henson production. So there's a lot of puppets and a lot of it's done with puppetry, but there's a lot of forced perspective stuff. There's these, uh, little creatures that show up, uh, that are, um, messing with Sarah as she's trying to get through the maze. Um, there's all different. I think there's some, I think there's some CGI. I think the owl at one point is CGI in the movie. There's practical, effects there's um layered uh like depth of field special effects and then of course you got hoggle who is one of the main characters who is a guy in a suit with a a face that's all uh controlled by wires and and he's got so many emotions his eyes move his mouth moves he he has he's expressive and uh, i actually saw the real hoggle suit and it's uh, amazing when you see it not moving. And it just looks like this chunk of latex rubber. It's just a thing sitting there. But once you put a person in it, you put all these special effects and stuff, it, it's, uh, uh, it, it becomes alive. You know, I don't think I've talked at all about the back to the future trilogy, uh, back to the future trilogy, pretty much every special effect that was known to man up until that point shows up in those movies. You've got green screen stuff. You've got, um, I mean, you have scenes where Michael J. Fox acts with Michael J. Fox from the past <laughs> or from the future. Um, the special effects in the hoverboard scene was so good that people thought they were coming out with hoverboards for Christmas in 1985. Everybody thought we were all going to get hoverboards. So, um, you know, back to the future is a crash course in practical special effects. Uh, it, it's every single thing that they had done. They pulled out every every stop to make the back to the future trilogy uh 2001 we talked about beetlejuice was on my list um beetlejuice is another movie that uses uh just about every effect that you could think of there's stop motion there's miniatures there's uh green screen stuff there's um lots and lots of makeup and latex and and 
things like that. So uh, obviously, I'm sure you're familiar with Beetlejuice. I put Ghostbusters on here, um, Matrix, Big Trouble in Little China. And then finally, I put um, Memoirs of an Invisible Man. That is a movie that is pretty maligned. A lot of people don't like it. I always liked it, but I liked it when it came out. It's an updated story of the Invisible Man starring Chevy Chase. Uh, he's in a uh, near a government facility. There's an explosion and something happens that turns him invisible. But what I like about this movie is traditionally uh, invisible people were done through green screen and through ma- and through mats, right? So like in the original H.G. Wells uh, Invisible Man, they had a guy wearing green screen uh, and then just with a hat on or something. And then they would take another shot of the background and then they would remove him from the foreground, but just leaving the hat. And so you had this, um, you know, this illusion that the person was uh, invisible that you could see through them. And they did some of that in memoirs of an invisible man. They did some other simple effects. Uh, like there's a scene where he's holding a gun and the gun is just literally being held by strings uh, and then they also did some CGI. There's a shot where he's eating food and we look and you can see the food digesting in his stomach, which he also sees and which makes him, uh, ill. And, uh, then you see the food come up, <laughs> but, and I will go back to one movie. I'm going to go back to mention something about the matrix. And this is something about, again, about practical effects was, it wasn't, it, It was what was the easiest way that you could do something to serve the scene the best way it needed to be served. In other words, everything didn't have to be CGI. Everything didn't have to be a million-dollar effect. Sometimes effects were done very simply. It's kind of like a magic trick. Like There's a lot of magic tricks that are pretty easy to do. Like Once you know how to do them, you go, well, that's easy. But if you don't know the illusion, you'd never figure it out. And so there's a scene at the end of The Matrix now, of course, Matrix, we've seen the – we're talking about the original Matrix. We've seen lots of CGI, and we see the bullet time effect, which is uh, basically where something that seems like it should be a frozen scene, but a camera moves around it in a way that it shouldn't be able to do that, and, and they invented this new technique. So there's a lot of groundbreaking technology and special effects in the Matrix, but towards the end – uh, when Agent Smith has uh, Neo cornered and he shoots his gun and Neo does something and he holds his hand up and all these bullets stop and the bullets are frozen in midair and Neo reaches up and plucks one of the bullets out of midair and looks at it and it drops and then they all drop. Well, that bullet and those bullets were attached to a sheet of plexiglass. So, when he reaches up and grabs that bullet, he's not, and it's not CGI and it's not strings and it's not anything. It's literally attached to a sheet of glass. We just can't see the glass. And he reaches up and takes the bullet off the piece of glass. It is the simplest concept of a special effect you can imagine. And yet it's, it's sold in such a way. It's, it's genius. It's absolutely genius. So that that's one of the things that I really have always enjoyed about special effects is the ingenuity that went into stuff. Uh, the ways that, uh, these guys were brought in and said, Hey, um, you know, there, in the, there's a part of the, uh, in the script for poltergeist 
there's a script, uh, there's a line in the script where at the end it says house implodes and they gave that to the special effects guys. And they said, what? Like, how does a house implode? And so they ended up building an entire replica of the house in miniature and every single part of the house was attached to piano wires and there's a hole underneath it. And so when it was time, you know, for, for the house to implode, they started pulling these wires and twisting. It was designed in a way where the house would twist and go into this hole. But you just, when you're watching that, obviously you're in the moment of the movie and you're like, what is happening to this house? It's an amazing scene. But in the back of your head, you're, you're always thinking, how did they do that? How did they make a house implode? And that's the part that has gone away from me because now I never wonder how anything was done. Um, when they were showing the new um, uh, Mandalorian stuff, uh, and I, I'll talk about the Mandalorian uh, in just a second, but um, the Mandalorian is really the, the next generation of special effects. But, but when I see things in the Mandalorian, I don't go, I wonder how that's done. I just go, hey, it's done with a computer. I know it's done with a computer. So there, there's no, I, there's no wondering anymore. It's, it may look really good, but, I just think, well, the computer looks really good. Um, so let's talk about the current state of special effects. Um, they uh, There was a thing recently where uh, the trailer, so the movie has not come out yet, but the trailer for the new Indiana Jones movie has come out. And, one of the controversies is that Harrison Ford in the trailer appears de-aged. Uh, they have made him younger than he actually is in real life. Now, I haven't seen the movie, so I don't know if he's been de-aged for the entire movie or if there's just flashbacks where they did that. I, I don't really know. Um, this is not brand new technology. They've been doing this for a while, uh, and they are now combining this with what we call deep fakes, which is where you take uh, pictures of a person and you can essentially map that onto someone else's face. And so you can make one actor become another actor. We saw this in season two of the Mandalorian, where we have an appearance of a very young and uh, era appropriate Luke Skywalker show up. So this would have been a few years, I believe, I believe Mandalorian takes place five years, roughly give or take after return of the Jedi. So Luke essentially looks like he does in return of the Jedi, but in real life, that would be Mark Hamill from 1988, not Mark Hamill from 2020. So they use this technology and they made a deep fake and, um, it's a, it's a CGI version of Mark Hamill's face. So that's the, that's the future. I mean, that's where we're at is, and I'm not saying the future is completely CGI actors or anything specific, but the future is uh, that there, I mean, and there will be, and there will continue to be advancements in special effects because that's how it works. And especially as computers get better and programmers get better and, and techniques get better, then special effects will get better. But we're at the point now where the wonder for me is over. I don't really wonder how they made a CGI Luke. I just know that it's a CGI Luke. I know that that's not really Mark Hamill. And so the, how they did it, the, the wonder of the how is what, what went away, you know? 
And so that really kind of brings me to, you know, the um, I, I want to talk just here at the end about the Mandalorian. Uh, the Mandalorian did start using this new technique, a new type of special effect, and they built this thing that's called the volume. If you've not watched this on YouTube and you're remotely interested in this topic, you should go Google Mandalorian and the volume. So the volume is a large uh, LCD screen. It is uh, 21 foot long, and then it is 75 uh, 75 cents, 75 foot wide. So it's a big U-shaped thing. And they are using Unreal Engine to render in real time CGI backgrounds. So the way it works is, is they can put people in the volume in this room and they can basically click a button and, and all around the volume becomes like the landscape of Tatooine. It becomes a desert. And so if you were wearing mirrored sunglasses in the mirrored sunglasses, you would see a reflection of Tatooine because that's what they're looking at. It feels like they are in that environment. All they got to do is pour some sand on the ground and now people are standing in, in um, Tatooine. So they don't have to build these sets, at least not physically. They build them digitally, you know. And I've watched, there are several clips on YouTube of them showing, demonstrating how the volume works. And it's like it's taken away the last part of filming, like the physical thing, like building the sets, you know. I mean, we can already change the actors faces. We could do the special effects and now the locations are all digital. I mean, they, they've been doing with matte paintings and stuff for a long time. We've been making fantasy backgrounds, but now it's all the whole thing is kind of digital. Uh, and so when I see that as a, a, a kid that grew up wanting to, to make latex masks, wanting to make fake blood, <laughs> wanting to make models and, and figure out how green screens work and do all those things. When I see scenes like that, that are CGI characters standing in front of CGI backgrounds and CGI special effects, I just think, you know, maybe I'm the one that's extinct. That wraps up another episode of You Don't Know Flack. If you have feedback about this or any episode of the show, you can email me directly at Rob O'Hara at robohara.com. Join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash robcast. Follow me on Twitter at Commodore. Come chat with me on the Amiga Retro Gaming Discord server or leave a message on the podcast hotline at area code 405-486-YDKF. If you'd like to support my shows, visit my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. All of my patrons get access to behind-the-scenes blog posts, weekly videos, access to the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server, and other additional perks. To find out more, visit my page. Again, that is patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. 
You Don't Know Flag is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and the RSS feed at podcast.robohara.com. To hear more podcasts from me like Sprite Castle, Cactus Flags, Like a Doss, and other shows, visit podcast.robohara.com for links and information about these shows. Congratulations. If you made it this far, you know a little bit more about movies and a little bit more about Flag. We'll see you next time.